Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our monthly livestream Q&A, uh, this is for the day before Halloween but as you can see, hopefully we are not actually dressed up for anything, just as regular way in the pie tie, and joined by my beautiful wife Sarah Fowler Arthur, who is our co-host today and will be asking all of your questions as you get them into the chat. We do have a couple that came in early that we'll go ahead and start with and we'll get right to them. I think I'm crooked. Inside. I was looking at that and I was like, I think it looks like I'm standing on the side of the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time, because usually the studio doesn't actually have cameras set up and then we set them up just for this once a month event. It always requires a bit of fine-tuning, so... Okay, is that better? Yep, I think yeah, we're good. okay, thank you. I just didn't think I could ask a question on my side, which might actually be an interesting question for space. put you upside down on the screen, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start off with a question here from C.R. Smith, and he says, Isaac Arthur, you often talk about light sails, but how can light import, impart a force? Force equals mass times acceleration, and light is massless, so zero. Anything times zero is zero, so there shouldn't be any force. Please help. Well, there's two things on this. First, because people wonder if this is just a theoretical thing, you can absolutely check if light will import force on things by sending it into the back of like a mirror, for instance, in a vacuum and watching it spin. Uh, so we have actually checked the light sail thing out quite well, and light all by itself does indeed experimentally cause force to be imparted. So then the question is, what's wrong with that, what's wrong with that equation? Do, do photons have mass? And of course we can't rule out they might have some, but everything seems to indicate that if any at all it's very, very tiny. More importantly, this, this classic law of physics, F equals ma, mass times acceleration, how much force you got, that dates back to Newton and it's, it's incorrect. <laughs> so, but only kind of sort of incorrect. What we know is that in almost every case where we experiment with this stuff, we could measure mass. That was what force could measure. Uh, it's hard to measure energy, we didn't even know most of the types of time. But almost everything that we have that's a mass-based equation is really, and we call this the rest mass, so as to not even bother with the term of relativistic mass, really means the total energy of the system. So a very hot object would actually be a little bit uh, more force apart or would hit something than an equally massed object that was cooler, for instance, because of thermal energy. And photons are made of nothing but kinetic energy. That is literally all they are. We call it photon energy, but they are nothing but kinetic energy, the motion energy. And that is what's imparting the force. But any energy can cause acceleration, you know, times its acceleration is going to be equal to the force. And it's kind of a hard way to kind of look at things that way, but this is the real context. Same, uh, just raw energy itself actually has a gravitational effect, not just mass. So there are still a lot of things we're a little unclear on how that works at the higher scale things, but for the most part, when you see something that has no mass, that's really its rest mass and has a kinetic or relativistic energy that's doing a lot of that work too. Okay, we've got a lot of energy-related questions today. So the next one here is from Flora Horbeck. Inflation stopped at 10 to the minus 33 seconds, strong force separated at minus 32. Is there a connection here, and could this be the time frame for dark energy to emerge? God, I wish that uh, inflation had stopped at 10 to the negative 30 seconds. That would be nice. <laughs> All right, so context there. We assume the kind of the Big Bang, which kind of moved away from the idea that this was an instant moment and more sort of a constant expansion thing. 
there was a period of what we call inflation where it was going very quickly compared to what it was now. Now this would be a period of time that was from the size of a grain of sand to the size of roughly a size of a you know a call, a plus or minus order of magnitude on there. And so it's not like a period that was really very long lasting. It was very short, but was very relevant because we believe that's when all the uh, anisotropy entered the universe. You know, had the universe been perfectly evenly spread, we wouldn't have formation of galaxies and things like that. There had to be little bits of irregularity. These are very tiny ones. They are, they are, you know, they would have been smaller than an atom that had popped up in terms of the irregularity, but those would have expanded out to cause the, you know, the wider ones later on. And so inflation is very important to the idea of our current cosmology. As to kind of where dark energy would have been played then, that was presumably what was causing the inflation, but we have this big problem. We can't see back to that moment in time. We can only see back as far as the surface of last scattering about 400,000 years after that moment because that's as far as photons could actually travel to us from without being absorbed by the universe as it was then. Maybe later on if we get able to find cosmic background neutrinos, we might be able to actually date back that era, but probably not even then, because we probably wouldn't even expect neutrinos to have been knocking and sword at that point in time. The universe would have been that dense, presumably. So it's a very hard to actually discuss that. In terms of specific cosmology on that one, because it is still strictly theoretical and there was a lot of disagreement, I would recommend reading uh, uh, Sean Cahill's blog on the battle, because he tends to be not only just one of the most respected guys on the topic, but also very approachable in his writings. So, uh, Miami's last capitalist, thank you for your $10 super chat. Thank you. You've convinced me how good beam propulsion is, especially for interplanetary, mm -hmm. realistic torch drive. Why isn't it more popular in sci-fi and space opera? Shouldn't it be? And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, too. Uh, and thank you for the, the support. Um, two things on that, because we were talking about beamed energy. A lot of times on the show when I talk about beamed energy, I'm using, we will talk about laser proportion, but a lot of times I'm using that as kind of a blanket term for almost any beamed energy. And it isn't always just necessarily reflecting off the back of the ship. It might be that it's being uh, beamed in to superheat some gas to fall beyond what you could burn it at temperature-wise. And that might be a better thing to do for interplanetary is have a big reservoir of like hydrogen gas that you superheat it with a microwave beam from elsewhere. Uh, in which case you're still following the rocket equation, but you're not putting quite so much stress on your rockets. Um, you know, for like an ion drive. Why is this less popular, I think, with sci-fi? One, it's a little bit more technical. And two, in, in science fiction, we still have this tendency to do the, the you know, the spaces and ocean and, uh, you know, fighter jets from World War One kind of idea that they're going to be, like, close ships running into each other and, and you know, dogfighting maneuvers. And that doesn't really work with beamed energy at all. Um, it's not that you couldn't do that, but you have to break contact and run on batteries for a while until your beam could back, back on you. And it doesn't really allow that independence. You're not really, if like flying away, people know where you are with something like that very easily. So I don't really think that people warm up to the idea of it for science fiction as much, especially when you can just choose whatever technology you want. So you say, well, we've got a fusion drive. Or my usual advice to folks, just go with, we have an engine. Don't, don't give me details other than how it actually operates in terms of what it does, not in terms of how it functions. Saves problems. So we have a Mars question here. When I read Google, it says that bamboo could grow on Mars, so why not bombard the planet with bamboo seedlings? It grows like crazy, and won't that create a breathable atmosphere? Um, well, no, for a couple of reasons. There was a, first, we don't actually know that it would grow on Mars just as is. What we usually have done tests with is to grow things in samples of Martian simulated soil, uh, uh -huh. which we have samples of that soil that we've done with pros. You're not buying anything back to look at. 
and then uh, seeing how it would go if we actually gave it, say, air in the background, too. Yeah. Uh, so what will go under the dome? And after the, uh, we actually have an episode on this farming on Mars in a few weeks, we'll go into more detail on this. But after that movie, The Martian, had come out, we'll go into potatoes. We had done some studies on, like, what kind of plants could grow there. Some did better than others. Like, spinach did very badly. Um, but a lot of the ones did okay in a sort of weak growth way. So we don't really want to imply that you could just drop bamboo by itself down on this planet where it still needs nitrogen to grow. It still uses the same photosynthetic process that every other, you know, organism of that variety uses. Um, it's not going to just grow in an airless environment. And because there's no liquids in that environment either. And most of these things need water as well. But the other aspect of that is that if you were to bombard these things that, you know, if you just try to seed the galaxy by throwing out bits of bamboo seeds or I, I, probably it's a rhizome. We think it's a rhizome. It is a rhizome, I yeah. believe. So, <laughs> so bamboo roots or whatever it happened to be in that case. Then, <laughs> um, and then you know it's going to land on that planet, and it's going to be landing at that planet at five kilometers per second, which you know just for context there means that when it hits the ground, it's probably not going to be a seedy anything. <laughs> so. Well, you mentioned that. Uh... You thought spinach didn't grow very well in the simulated Martian soil, and no, yeah, I grown. would have been okay with that up until we had our bacon, oh, good God, yeah. toasted spinach, <laughs> and you know, it, then it was like, wow, changed my whole perspective it on did. spinach. Yeah, well, I've always liked spinach as opposed to just like kind of iceberg lettuce. But for everyone who remembers when HelloFresh was doing spots, they're still one of our sponsors for the show. They sent us these recipes, and they're very good recipes that mm-hmm. like uh, you know I cook them on air. When they sent several of them, we took the best takes, but. I love cooking, and I, there was always these new recipes for that. And one of the ones they have there is you start off with some bacon, right? and you cook that bacon in the pan, and you and you first thought is well, now I'm going to have to drain all this grease out. It says no, you got like two, three cups of, of spinach. No, not cups, pounds. Pounds, pounds of spinach, it's like it's like mini, sixteen mini cups. cups. Of it, yeah. <laughs> and it just says, "I'll take it." And put it into the baking grease and cook it up. And put the lid on yeah. and let it simmer. I feel like that defeats the purpose of any healthy quantity that, that spinach was bringing to the table, but it did actually taste good. It did. Yeah. <laughs> but you could feel the coronary, coronary <laughs> happening with every mouthful. Yeah. And... Nine out of ten doctors recommend that, but it's only the ones who want to buy a new Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might play into C.R. Smith's here question life extension plays a huge role in many of your videos don't eat spinach coated in bacon every day <laughs> however i was wondering what would the future look like if there was no magic live forever button and death still got us all i mean at that point it, death's gonna get you anyway this is a fine might as well go out eating bacon is this <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean you should rapidly bring that on by giving yourself a coronary um but you know, we, we always contemplate, really, we talk about life extension, we're talking about extending life, not indefinitely doing so. Or I should say indefinitely, but in the context of, like, you might live a million years. I think after that, you have to give up anything approaching a human architecture, but you might live a trillion. You're not going to live to infinity. You know, that's not how that works out. But um, is it going to change? You know, what's it change for us? A lot of times on the show, I will very intentionally only have, you know, one really different aspect of civilization kind of in the set in the setting partially because one i don't want to try to overlap different concepts and the episodes all meant to be standalone so like let's go colonize pluto we introduced a little bit of transhumanism in the background of it but it's mostly about pluto right uh and then the flip side of that is i can't actually predict what the real future will look like and that involves synthesizing dozens of these ideas if not more 
correctly and at just the right amounts. And you know, it's like here was sixty ingredients, including bacon grease and spinach. <laughs> you know, tell me how this. You tell me what this tastes like. I said, well, how much of each do I get to use? I I, I can't tell you. It might be ten to one or a thousand to one ratios of each thing with each other. Okay. Which ones do I get to use? Also, there are 20 mystery ingredients. That's the future. We can kind of guess certain aspects of it that way, but you can't synthesize it. So we try to do episodes on the basis that usually we'll talk about life extension as a very real option, but also we'll have whole episodes that we don't talk about it as an option. Like, we haven't done a specific dedicated episode to Methuselah ships, um, although our first episode of the year is going to be back to interstellar colonization for a bit, but we do talk about Gardner ships in the context of people living almost indefinitely. If that doesn't happen, though, it's just back to your generation ship scale. I, I don't really see a future where we don't live decently longer, like where we, you know, the average person doesn't live to be over 100, because we're currently expecting that's going to be the norm come 2060 or so without as much scientific increase. But in um, that's the society that you actually have, it's almost easier to predict than the ones we tend to aim for because, yes, we live a little bit longer, maybe, but we still have the same normal lifespans. And so your space colonization always has to be based off the idea that you're not living indefinitely but that's kind of our default setting when we think about this stuff anyway so it's more we have to remind ourselves what future might look like if people do live to be five or six hundred so albert jackinson says good afternoon isaac and sarah Hi, albert. isaac you came up with the chandelier cities in outward bound how would they be laid out i thought you might be able to answer this since you originally described the concept um actually no well kind of um gregory benford has them in his galactic center saga and i had this image of them being cities that hung down from space like chandeliers. Uh, and But when I went back and read it, uh, he was, you know, afterwards I couldn't find any reference to that. Uh, just the mention of chandelier cities. I sent him a message once asking, but I don't know if he never got it or just didn't respond. So I actually don't know if what we had to colonizing Neptune is, you know, the, the image that he had in mind we said chandelier cities. But um, since I don't really know what he had in mind for that, and it is his term originally, I can't say for sure that the one we made for the show is, but there we had the idea that this is something like an orbital ring or an orbital plate, where the city is just hanging down from a tensile style. Instead of building up on compressive strength, you build down on you know suspended suspension or uh, tensile strength. In that regard, though, it's very similar. It's just that instead of the ceiling being supported by the floor, the floor is hanging from the ceiling, and everything else inside it would otherwise be normal. So think of like an orbital ring hanging 80 meters, 80 kilometers above the ground in the atmosphere still, and then it's just hanging down from it like an icicle. And if that war issue is an option, it really is the exact same kind of force concept that you have when you're sitting on the ground. And if you're falling a thousand stories either way, it's still going to kill you. So. <laughs> well, that's true. And then it looks like a chandelier because those look awesome. And that's how Jeremy ended up doing the illustration for that, which was amazing. <laughs> so Fates End says, Hi, Isaac. What are your thoughts on the realism, or perhaps lack of realism, of alien mind tropes in fiction, and how would you do it better? Alien mind tropes? Like M-I-N-D? Yes, like mind? your okay. brain. Mind. Um, in terms of, I mean, we use a lot of examples of really just what if we took this weird culture from, the, from our own existence. Or, you know, like, uh, let's say they are very like this or that civilization that previously existed, like ancient Egypt from Stargate was a popular one, and then the Asgard were like the Norse, right? Or you have this ancient one where they are, in the case of Star Trek a lot, they like to use literal Greek gods. Um, and then you have other ones where it's like, let's take this animal, like the bee or the ant, and uh, turn them into an intelligent hive mind. Um, 
but uh, I would say that that's the issue I usually have with it is they are not being inventive enough. You know, hive minds don't really have any reason to ever get smarter as individuals, so you wouldn't have like you and me as that. Your example of what a hive mind is like is more like um, more like we actually already are to some degree, but it's more like a networked intelligence. You know, you're already all kind of an ecosystem more than an individual critter. Um, but the ones I tend to find most boring is just the space elves trope. That that one drives me nuts. I hate the space elves. Um, <laughs> I hate space zombies. I hate space vampires, and I hate space elves. It just gets to be uh, it's 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 not interesting as a trope so that's the one i really don't like encountering an alien civilization that is apparently perfect and peaceful in every way and kind of condescending towards humanity is the is always kind of like Ugh. but <laughs> that's about it it's might even be realistic it's just boring <laughs> so from christian corello thank you for your super chat christian he says are you aware of quantum entanglement experiment that won a nobel prize in physics this year and if so, did the experiment results make quantum communications more, less, or just as likely as before? Uh, exactly the same as before, which say, I mean, well, we should clarify. We say, I'll have to say quantum entanglement for communication isn't any use at all. What I mean by that is faster or light quantum entanglement isn't used at all. Uh, quantum entanglement might be an amazing way to do uh, speed of light and 100% encrypted and unintelligible communication, right? There's some options for that. That uh, is very interesting, but... The biggest thing with quantum entanglement or spooky action at the distance, and none of this has changed that I'm aware of. I, maybe I didn't have, you know, life has been rather distracting the last couple of months, so I might have missed if there was some magic to break through, but I'm sure I'd have seen it if it violated any FTL scenarios. Um, I've been that distracted. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the basic notion being, if I send a person a letter on the other side of the planet that says, I've sent two letters out, one letter has a green paper inside and the other has a red paper inside, Right. Um, when I open that letter I, and I see I got red, I know the other one's green, assuming I believe that. Um, and that I randomly sent these out is the other thing. Right? I flipped a coin or whatever it is, I, that's how I decided who to send it to. Now, if I move that to two other planets, even though those planets are separated by hundreds of millions of light years even, right? I open that letter up and I'm like, wow, it's red. I instantly know the one millions of light years away is green before light from that thing being opened could have reached me. That is spooky action at distance in terms of sending information. How it actually operates is weird, but the only information it actually sends is trivial. Just that piece of knowledge. So you can't really use that to send a message real time between those two points. And we've tried to think of every strange way we could. They never, it doesn't really work that way. So I don't expect this new experiment to change that, that, that I'm familiar with. And a f uh... Another question on light here from Andrew Hartley. Thank you also, Andrew, for your super chat. If we remain limited to 25% of speed of light while maintaining a decent level of production, how long do you think that it will take for humans to settle our entire galaxy if we don't blow up first? Uh, I mean, at 25% of light speed, um, 400,000 years. It, it, it depends on how you're defining the edge of the galaxy and keep in mind that we are not in the center of it anyway. So... The far end tip, and I, I really don't remember off the top of my head, the Magellanic Clouds, which we usually think was part of our galaxy these days, um, or on the outside of the galaxy or at an angle or furthest from us. When I was a kid, it was us and Andromeda and the two Magellanic Clouds that were nearby us as kind of separate dwarf galaxies. As astronomy has improved since then, we realized there was 
tons of dwarf galaxies inside our galaxy because it's been eating up galaxies like crazy. It's what it does. So I don't know if we even bother really calling the Magellan Clouds as like a separate entity. But the galaxy in that kind of context goes bigger. And there are a lot of stars between galaxies too. I've, I've even heard estimates to say there would be more of them between galaxies than they're inside the galaxies. But they'd be weaker or dimmer and further apart just in general. right? Uh, things are spread thin out there. But uh, in terms of how long it would take you to colonize the galaxy, if you move in 25% of light speed, pick the most distant object in the galaxy as you choose to divine it, and multiply by four. So. <laughs> okay. Reverend Arv... I really would expect it to move more or less that speed, too. Go ahead. Sorry. Reverend RV says, Much uranium and thorium heats the Earth and allows for our liquid core and for our plate tectonics. Mars lacks as much of these radioactive elements. Is this a minor filter or another great filter? Um, I mean, we first should go ahead and say the reason why the planet is hot is only partially because of all the uranium and stuff that's in there. What we have to keep in mind is that it's hard for plants to... It, large objects cool in space really slowly. They're like vacuum, you know, thermoses because the only thing to do is to heat off energy and it will cool towards the outer edges first and as it cools towards the outer edges, it emits even more slowly. Most of this planet's heat comes from the place collapsing in the first place. You know, say, oh, the heat of gravitational collapse, surely that should have cooled by now. If you set gasoline on fire, it will release a certain amount of heat. <laughs> and it would still be colder, that individual bits of gasoline was burning, than the center of the Earth was. Or that things would be as they fall down this planet. Most of the speed of an asteroid, things like that, as they accelerate towards this planet, that's what the center of the Earth has. That's what's in there. That's that much heat. And yes, uranium and things like that do produce a lot of heat. And it's not trivial, but don't assume that just because there's not as much here, or not, sorry, in a place like uh, Mars, that's why it's cold. It's mostly colder because it's smaller. Right? But it's still, we think it's still a couple thousand degrees in the center of the moon. Although, <laughs> it's hard to kind of put up then. I guess it would depend if you're on Celsius and Fahrenheit. I can't remember which scale that's at the moment. <laughs> Definitely difficult yeah, it, to know. It could be a filter, right? It absolutely could be. I'm sure, I, and I actually would guess that tectonics is a big one. This is a mouthful for a name. Isaac, the web comic creator. On a <laughs> scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate Stargate SG-1 in tar terms of hard sci-fi, SF? Um, in terms of television shows, specifically. Science and I, fiction. Yeah, and we could say in terms of television shows, sci-fi TV shows, and maybe movies as well, just in terms of those, I would give it eight or nine out of ten. Um, it has some mess ups, but like you go back and watch Doctor Who, especially in the Tom Baker era, they'll get Newton's laws wrong while while telling you what they are, as opposed to being oversight. Um, but there's one episode that well, it wouldn't have been Tom Baker era it was the uh, right between Peter Davidson and Colin Baker. Colin Baker's first episode is Doctor Six. They're talking about how by adding another planet to the uh, to the solar system's area, it's going to if they move these plants close to the sun, it's going to cause all of them to fall into the sun. And it's like, that's not how gravity works, but okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I would say Doctor Who usually gets a 2 or 3 out of 10 because at least they're making an effort, but they're not. You know, they all like on the very soft side of sci-fi. Uh, Star Trek usually in my mind gets rated as 6 out of 10 because it's the norm, but it's on the high end of the norm. It's, it's like the norm set along with Star Wars. So I'd say like, 4 out of 10 Star Wars, 6 out of 10 Star Trek, because they are the original two that everyone knows to compare stuff to. And they're both a median sample. Uh, I would say Stargate probably an 8 or a 9 out of 10 in terms of like space-based sci-fi because 
they do take some liberties with physics, but not very many, and they usually let people know when they're doing it. They and they also tend to get the other stuff right too, which is when you're doing sci-fi, it's your realism on anything you're actually focusing on that really is a critical, right? Like um, mm-hmm. Peter Watts' novel Blindside is very good for the science in it, but he's a marine biologist. When he's talking his area, it's really good. But when he deep dives anything else, it's pretty good too. You know, he did his research, he deep dives it, and that's what matters. But usually you wouldn't say, oh, I think they got their military ranks in Siggy all wrong in, in Stargate, because that's not really a sci-fi accuracy thing. But yes, that is part of it too, right? It's like when people mess up a fantasy series by having people having chainmail back in like the Bronze Age. Um, but that's usually the one I actually most get on Stargate as. It'd be very weird for the Air Force to be sending a colonel, a major, and two civilians through as their gate personnel. They, if you have, they actually have elite troops who are enlisted who would be that job to go through, you know, sergeants and lieutenants and things like that. And it's not just because of intelligence and rank. It's about when you're sending people through some place into a hostile territory, it's nice that they are, uh, you know, young and mobile and spry, <laughs> which is usually soda with being young or ragged and so forth, you know, in their 20s. So. Yeager says... It's since... my favorite sci-fi show, though, in terms of just long-range <laughs> franchise. Go ahead. Yeager says, since there's some evidence that we accidentally seeded life in Venus's atmosphere, and we know that bacteria caused the oxygen catastrophe, do you think using microbes to terraform has merit? Um, I mean, absolutely is an option. The thing is, to me, microbes and anything involving that is slow. Like, if you look at the idea of um, trying to repeat something like the oxygen holocaust here on Earth, all models say that took millions of years, like millions, and not like small millions either, like probably hundreds of millions. And that's really not the terraforming model we'd like to pursue. Uh, you know, you got used to going slow at times like that, but at the same time, I'd like to be able to terraform a planet in a few thousand years, maybe even a few centuries. <laughs> and, you know, our civilization has not been around that long, so I don't really like the idea of coming to a project that's going to take us much longer than that and assume it's going to happen. So microbes, big expectations. Yeah. The other thing is that, by and large, um, you know, bacteria produce, they, they, they take, you know, water and oxygen, they make sugars, and you got that process going on. They don't make a lot of extra. You know, if you want your biomass to really be filling up on a planet quickly and building those atmospheres, you need to engineer a life form that's designed with that in mind, not taking something from Earth who's, who's, you know, not designed with that in mind. So you could do the bacteria route, but not without, I mean, it would just make sense to engineer the stuff to what you want to do first. So, due to relativity, mm-hmm. would a civilization at the edge of the galaxy experience more time and therefore be more advanced? Oh, um, yes, they technically, this is a general relativity question, they do technically experience more time out there uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the gravity is much weaker uh, out towards the edge of the galaxy than it is here. Mind you, if you're on a planet, though, out there, you're still experiencing the same basic gravity. It's like gravity is exactly where the core is, is you know, where most of the gravity, you know, where that is at. Very loosely speaking, if you take your escape velocity from a location out to the you know empty space at war and run that through special relativity that as a velocity your ship's going that's going to give you your time dilation and they're also moving at a slower orbit out there as are things further from the galactic core so both of those combined mean time runs slower there however even as fast as that speed is and i want to say it's like 500 kilometers per second which is insanely fast though 
you know, look that up as opposed to taking my word for it. Um, that does mean that that's still not really that much of a relativistic scale. <laughs> I get 10% of, I don't know, let's not even run through the numbers. To get time to slow down by a factor of 50%, you got to be doing about 80% of light speed. And beneath that level, it just really goes down. And anything we think of for normal interstellar speeds like 10%, that's where all you're talking about way off. That's still faster than you have for this time dilation. But it's uh, fix the clocks once a day because you lost a couple seconds. Maybe over the course of a lifetime, you gained a couple minutes, that kind of thing. It's not that much. And so it's not that much for civilization either. Mr. Mark Medellin says, when will we see the first consumable gold or aluminum sheet produced on the moon, indistinguishable from Terran products? What will it be and by who, for what purpose? You know what I thought of when I first heard this one? For eating, yes, I thought that too. It says consumable. (laughs) Remember that cake that we saw on that British baking show and they were putting the gold leaf and the silver on it? (laughs) People occasionally ask me, what do you binge watch? I said, well, to be honest... I don't actually watch that much of other science programs. And they wrapped it up in the yeah. gold. <laughs> we watch baking shows. <laughs> we were watching the fifth season of uh, that was the greatest greatest baking show or something like that. What it's called? The great, the great British Bake Off or yeah. something like that. Uh, and uh, the kids' version, which was even cuter to watch. Junior so, Bake Off. Yeah, junior Bake Off. Yeah, that was last week's thing. Besides, what we that in Jeopardy was the two highlights when I got back from camping. <laughs> But, and dreaming um, about luscious cakes. Yeah. And they were using in... well, they were using gold leaf on one of the cakes, yeah. or one of the general was that Stephen was using that uh, to kind of make the cake looking better, so you can eat gold. I, I'm going to assume to get back to the topic <laughs> that what he means by consumable is useful for the purpose of industry. Oh man, I liked it on the cake; it was really pretty. Uh, okay, so, so under you that assumption, what the actual question is. Under that assumption, when will we see the first consumable gold or aluminum sheet produced on the moon? For whom, by whom, and what purpose? Um, I would give a 50% chance <laughs> the first actual industrial production of anything or a test product for that would probably be SpaceX at this point in time. And then I'd say your next runner-up after that would be NASA, obviously. And which one is, it, it could be either or very easily on that. Um, NASA still has way more resources for getting stuff done than SpaceX does, but... They seem to be where the inertia's at at the moment. And then after that, either the ESA or Russia, um, and they have the best space programs at this time. And I don't think that's going to change the next couple of decades, and that's really where that's going to be at, because someone's going to test, you know, like um, a solar kiln for the purpose of making aluminum, or I guess for aluminum, we more just PV and uh, the usual process for that. But for a lot of those things, that's where that's going to be tested out. To actually producing it just depends. You know, it might be that people say, the best way to fix our problems right now with uh, with you know CO two is to get up there and build a bunch of aluminum pa- panels and put them in orbit. You know, in which case, if we throw a trillion dollars at, we could make that happen very quickly. Otherwise, it might be twenty or thirty years to do <laughs> tests and processes. All right, we have two more quick questions before the break. All right. Um, the first one here is from Alexander Potachev. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your super chat, Alexander. Happy Halloween. Is there a way to suck in time, space time and expel it like what a jet engine does with air? I don't know, but it would be awesome if we could. Uh, I mean, is this is the idea, a little bit kind of, kind of sort of what a warp drive would be doing to some degree, is the idea that you're crunching space time ahead of you and, and, and shooting it out the back so that you shrink the distance ahead of you and move the distance behind you to expand and that moves your ship. Right? That's kind of how, I should say, 
that's how some warp drives work. The Tom is kind of blanket. There's a lot of theories on it. If you can crunch space-time ahead of you, and I should say if you can actually crunch it, though, I think what we mean then is extracting the energy out of it. And that, depending on which estimate we're going by in terms of how much energy is latent in there, you might crush something smaller than an atom and have enough energy to blow up a planet. <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of a mismatch on the models there. Or you might crunch the space ahead of you or the size of your ship and have enough energy to push your ship up to higher speed while having left a, uh, a small, I don't want to say tail in space-time. you think if you if you just sucked a piece of space-time right out in front of you, that would somehow damage the universe, but that's exactly the opposite of what dark energy does, and that doesn't really make things get all warped and weird either. So um, if you could do that, that would be the ultimate power source because then you could just prevent dark energy instead of gigantic, you know, expanders that just ate that and gave you energy indefinitely and kept the universe from spanning away. Uh, but that right now would be the realm of sci-fi, though probably a pretty awesome story. <laughs> so speaking of sci-fi, yeah. since Halloween is tomorrow, what is the scariest hard science fiction you could possibly imagine? Scariest science fiction? I'd say Inventor. Oh, hard, hard sci-fi. Uh, for software sci-fi, although not really that soft, Event Horizon would probably be it from the... Uh, Especially because I saw that live while I was still in my teens uh, when it first came out. That that movie is definitely terrifying, and it, it's it's almost feels like a, a prologue episode of the Warhammer Forty Thousand setting. Um, let's see, scariest, not Sunshine, because I love the movie Sunshine, and it is hard sci-fi. It's just the the villain in that the evil monsterish guy. He pops up the last thirty minutes, so unnecessarily spoiling a good psychological thriller in my mind. But great movie. Minus the last 30 minutes, but including the last minute. Um, but uh, scariest hard sci-fi movie. I don't know. I was going to you're having scariest, to think about that too hard. Yeah. Uh, scariest hard sci-fi novels. Um, the Revelation Space series by Alistair Reynolds and uh, Blindside by Peter Watts. Those are definitely scary hard sci-fi if you're looking for some. For movies, the ones I just suggested might be good ones. That was the last oh, question okay. before the break. And now it's time for the intermission. We'll see you in a few minutes. We'll be on break for a couple of minutes, and it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack. While we're on break, since it is Halloween weekend, I occasionally get asked which technology or future options frightens me the most, and the usual suspects are runaway AI, super WMDs like antimatter or tailored viruses, alien invasions or virtual reality or designer drugs, or an end to privacy and so on. That's a hard question to answer because almost every pathway can be terrifying. For the purpose of science fiction it just depends on the author writing the story and for instance Robert Matheson's I Am Legend, which spawned the entire zombie apocalypse genre without actually having zombies in it, they were vampires, is obviously a masterpiece of fiction. Alternatively, Holland Ellison's I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream, featuring a super AI, is utterly terrifying and one of his best works, but not really for the computer mind. And the same for Isaac Asimov's short story The Last Answer, not to be confused with his better known story The Last Question, which features a near-omnipotent computer mind keeping a human captive. It's not really about the dangers of artificial intelligence, just being at the mercy of an unkind entity who can keep you going eternally, like Roko's Basilisk, and works as well for a fantasy novel or if you replace AI with aliens, 
Indeed we see that with presumed aliens or some unknown agency in Roger Zelazny's short story Go Starless in the Night, and in all three we see the protagonist figure out a way to score some sort of victory, and all four of those authors have some scary writing if you're looking for holiday appropriate reading. Asmov though is not really known for being a scary writer and it's easy to forget that his roughly 500 printed books run a lot of genres and while he's the grandmaster of science fiction, it was not even the majority of his published works. In his case though, it's a good reminder how often it's contemplating the setting and characters in sci-fi that are not meant to be scary, often instead heroic or utopian, and thinking out from the perspective of realism that often shows an unintentional dark side to such a civilization. As an example, it's a fairly common belief that part of why Asimov resisted adding new novels to his Foundation series was that he felt he'd written himself into a corner with new ideal civilizations, all of whom were pretty horrifying to contemplate in terms of telepathic mastermind manipulators armed with the ability to predict the future, followed up by hive minds seeking to dominate the galaxy. And we get that comparison with Star Trek too, where the classic Federation seems weirdly authoritarian and controlling in some episodes. Often that's the result of bad or hasty writing, and we see that a lot with TV where you often need to put a couple dozen barely related stories together with different writers in one season and keep consistency, which was even harder in pre-internet days and when most sci-fi had shoestring budgets which certainly did not include any detailed effort to monitor their canon. Needless to say, TV adaptations of various classic fiction can be a bit horrifying too, though for other reasons. There's been some very good and very bad and an awful lot of just so-so adaptations of books to TV and film over the years and a lot in the last few, but I have noticed these long with satires on classics often do a great job highlighting those unseen and unintentional horror stories of classics, often when they didn't mean to, and a quick shout out to Chuck Sonnenberg of SF Debris for so many enjoyable examples of him doing that with Star Trek and many other works over the years. Great show. But as humorous as those examples can be, they actually are the kind I tend to look for and get scared by, because the road paved with good intentions is one where it's very easy to forget to worry about the destination and if your companions might be getting pretty morally gray for the sake of the cause. So too, an awesome looking future might hide some horrifying things, and in their realism they might be worse than any scary tale even the finest writer might imagine. And on that note, Happy Halloween, and let's get back to more of your questions. So we'll get started in just a second as Sarah comes back, but I just noticed one of the questions on there since I'm actually looking at the live stream at the moment. Someone asked if we were moved away from base 10 as a number system, what base would we move to? And that's actually. One of those ones I tend to be a little bit of a stickler about is I tend to feel we, we shouldn't act as though we always used a base 10 number system because we used base 12 a lot more often, which if you're used to counting by your knuckles is actually a much better way than counting on your fingers. So um, if we were going to go away from base 10 as opposed to going like binary or hexadecimal, I would argue that we will be going away from base uh, 5 slash 12 at the same time. So. 5 times 12, very natural system there, that's 60 seconds, 60 minutes, etc. 12 hours a day, and it divides more evenly too. So if we are going to go to a more human natural system than base 10, I'd go with base 12. If you're just going to go for something that's more useful computers, binary would be the way to go, or hexadecimal. 
And the next question here is from Rafflecopter Kerman. What do you think about using the Oberth effect and solar moth to decelerate from interstellar velocity? I have no idea what solar moth is. That's what it says. <laughs> uh, how about we focus typo, on the Oberth effect? Can that or a quick explanation of, of why I don't know that one? Um, Maybe it's like some sort of decay. We'll come back to that one. Uh, if somebody <laughs> put it back, yeah. Okay. Uh, how about this one? If we choose to uplift animals, would we uplift each individual species or create hybrids, such as a mixture of all great apes, a mix of crows, parrots, and pigeons, a mix of dolphins, and cephalopods? Yes. Uh, and many points in between, too. Um, I, I, I'd be a little afraid you'd end up inventing something that looked an awful lot like Cthulhu is supposed to be at some point, but... I mean, you uplift a dolphin, or you let's say you go to uplift an ape, right, or a chimpanzee. Do you say, well, let's use a kind of a mixture there because a chimpanzee's really not got the body mass to be able to really do much in society, though they're devilishly strong for their size. Um, you know, like an ape, can you go ahead and uh, give it more of the chimp's hands that, that might be a little more appropriate for that? Um, same, I think you see a lot of really heavy engineering in terms of those. You also have to kind of ask why people are doing it, and... Uh, you know, I think I would think generally speaking, an uplifted dog shouldn't try to be a dog person, like a dog human, uh, or a werewolf. <laughs> yeah. Uh I think that you'd want to be going for something that was an intelligent dog, which might not necessarily be human intelligent. Uplifted doesn't necessarily mean what aiming for that. Because you make something that's human intelligent, it might not be happy being a pet anymore. And then it becomes competition as opposed to a good friend, you know. So I think you'd see a lot of variation though in terms of hybriding that both intelligence and the actual taxonomic aspects. C.R. Smith, thank you for your super chat. We most likely do not live in a galaxy with a rival Kirabi civilization. However, what would we see in our night sky and our astronomy if we lived in a galaxy with a currently expanding Grabby alien? Um, that's actually a little hard to visualize because um, they'd be expanding probably as a rough sphere until they got to the more point where it was less a sphere than a kind of a disk. But in the night sky, it wouldn't really... It depends on how fast they're traveling, too, but it wouldn't really look like a sphere to us. It'd be kind of a dot in the sky that was getting blacker, but you'd still have a lot of individual stars in it that were much closer to us. So, like, if they're expanding a sphere that way, you know, 100,000 light years away, we start seeing many of those stars disappearing, although we wouldn't because we didn't see them with our naked eye. And as they got closer, we'd see stars disappearing from inside that slightly expanding blob, but also stars that were much closer and brighter that were still there. Uh, from an astronomical standpoint, though, we'd expect to see a loosely spherical bulge uh, until it became more disc-shaped as they expanded towards us in terms of how we plotted out three-dimensionally. But mostly a, a, a darker region of the sky that still had stars in it, and the brighter stars that were closer being most prominent. And Joe Cohen says, how did you go from being a Marine to doing this? I love your videos, and there's nothing else really like it on YouTube. Well, I didn't go from being a Marine. <laughs> so... Uh, for back uh, back for that, I was in the United States Army for seven years and change, and um, I, I I think that's on behalf of all Marines and Army, I'd say we wouldn't want to mix those two up. So <laughs> <laughs> I did actually get to work with uh, with the Marine platoon a lot while I was deployed to Iraq, and they were great folks to work with on most things. Um, but uh, stereotypes and and service rivalries behind. Um, I uh, my father was in the Army. I had one uncle in the Army and another in the uh, the, the Navy as a CB uh, for NAM, and I actually had some cousins in the Air Force and Army and Guard as well. 
And when I was 19, uh, I went and did an internship with the United States Air Force at Ryan Patterson Air Force Base uh, Institute of Technology there in Dayton, Ohio. And I got uh, fond of, of just kind of the, the folks there a lot, um, and it made me think about joining the military, but I didn't want to join the Air Force specifically. I, I'm a more boots on the ground kind of person, and the Army was more appealing. So um, so I was in the Army for four years of active, and then I came back and did uh, three in reserve afterwards while I was getting a little bit back into civilization. Um, and one deployment for 14 months uh, to Iraq. Um, let's see, in terms of how did I go from here to there, when I was done with my internship, I came back and started grad school up, uh, and then, so the internship was 2000, and I joined the Army about 2003 when I left grad school, so I've been an undergrad in physics at Kent State University, did an internship at Wright-Patterson with the Air Force, and then came back and did grad school uh, at Kent State University again for, for two years and change. And then I went off and joined the Army as an enlisted and then came out and got out of it. Uh, and I didn't want to go back to college, didn't want to do a whole career in the military, and but I missed the geekiness aspect of, of physics. So I had started hanging out with various sci-fi forums, uh, talking to a lot of the authors about how to make their science more, you know, their sci-fi more realistic. And I ended up doing a video on it. And I ended up doing an episode kind of following up on that and then one up on that. And then like a year later, it had become an almost weekly hobby. And sometime after that, they talked me into accepting donations and sponsors and became a, it became a profession, I guess, at that point. So here we are sometime after eight years from that happening, and it's still, I'm still loving it. It's great. So that's the loose pathway on that one, though. Miletti Class said, thank you for your super chat. And he says, hey, Isaac Arthur, I got introduced to you through a close friend of mine, and I've been a fan ever since. Well, what are you? a great friend. <laughs> Go ahead. All friends that inter make introductions are great friends, right? Yeah, pleased to be. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on speculative evolution, specevol for short? Um, uh, limited because I'm not positive that I actually know what the context of that word is. Um, I'm thinking you're meaning the idea of speculating on what evolutionary paths different worlds might take or which directions that humans might take. If it's a ladder, I think those are fun ideas to have, but also very hard to really follow up on like what will humans look like in another million years kind of has me taking the context of are we including technology or a natural environment for us to mutate in and uh obviously in a technological environment you really don't know what we look like but i love to kind of speculate on how new worlds would have evolution like what would life be like on a lower gravity world but it is pretty speculative at this stage if so that didn't answer your question i'm sorry <laughs> we got a little clarification on the solar moth a mm -hmm. solar moth is a light pumped rocket that uses parabolic reflectors to heat the reaction mass. Okay. So the question originally was, what do you think about using the Oberth effect and solar moth to decelerate from interstellar velocity? Yeah, I think that could work out, and that's a cool name for it. I'm surprised I've never heard that one before. But uh, so the idea there, um, would that work for another solar system? Always the problem in all these things is is how much speed you can take off and and how big are your sails. One of the reasons why we talk about using like I have a fleet coming in, and, and they decelerate a little bit by pushing in front of them a slight sail. And you know, one of the ones they had that they accelerated on, they push that in front, and they use a beam pushing off of that to push that one direction, and they slow down a little bit in the process of doing that. As it goes in that solar system, it slows down a little bit from sunlight pressure because it's a very thin one. 
and then he can send a beam out for all their lives, resolving to push back on the fleet a little bit and slow it down. Or another one after that, that's another meal they're doing the same thing with, in a chain until it slows the whole fleet down. In that way, hoping to slow the thing down from speed. And at that point, because it isn't passive, because you're all using a very heavy amount of energy from that star to slow the fleet directly, I think you could get away with pulling off you know, genuinely relativistic speeds. I think otherwise, though, I don't think very many tricks like that will let you do more than a few percent of light speed at the most. It's very hard to, to use something like the Orbath effect to really slow a ship down compared to the speed of the objects you're interacting with. And uh, another super chat from Christian Corello. Thank you, Christian. Could a civilization avoid detection by always being on the move via stellar engine, and how would orbiting planets avoid incineration by said engine? Hmm. I mean, the biggest problem you have with an engine if you're trying to go for secrecy is that if it can move you at relativistic speeds, it makes something like the space shuttle look tiny, and you could spot the space shuttle telescopically on a different planet in your own solar system very easily uh, while it has its engines on. Um, I don't think that spaceships are a great way to stay stealthy while they actually got their engines running. Um, on the other hand, if you can do most of your main born while you'd probably be in the shadow of something more or less, like a star, as you're trying to get away from a solar system, then others might not see you doing it. You know, and you just drift to that point and use it to give you a few tweaks of location here and there at very little power. Um, but uh, as to a spaceship engine, what was the second half of the spaceship incinerating the planet? Right, whether or not, so the uh, planets would avoid being incinerated by the engine. I mean, quite the engine. I mean, well, <laughs> to be fair, like kind of like something like a black hole drive on the back of a uh, bigoton ship. If you were just to like run that at one G while you hung above the planet, you'd be like peeling that planet's biosphere off like an apple. <laughs> so, that's how powerful those kind of engines would be. But at the same time, um, generally speaking, you're not going to really incinerate a planet with a rocket engine unless you're perpetually firing it for days and days and days in a row at, you know, the kind of ships, you know, ship engines you need to move something like a heavy asteroid at least. So it's not, not really that powerful usually. <laughs> So here's one that would probably be really fun to hear what uh, our future kids would think about. Mm -hmm. It says, how could you create a tree or a bush that grew a strange food, such as an ice cream tree, a bacon tree, a potato chip bush, or what kind of food would you choose? For I'm sorry, what, what ice cream tree? Give me that, that, that one line. <laughs> if you could create a tree or a bush that grew a strange food, what would you pick? Ice cream? tree bacon tree potato chip bush what kind of food would it be yeah uh for people who are big fans of the simpsons or family guy that immediately brings to mind this this one episode where the uh, professor's got the um the cow that's got the like the coat and the scarf on and then they're they're making ice cream by just milking the cow and then of course in uh in family guy they like, don't play by the candy tree it eats children <laughs> it's like that would make some sense you know why would you grow candy the little little children eat them so I guess for context on that one. Oh, uh, uh, for anyone wondering what the reference on that is, Sarah and I are, are foster parents who are getting ready to uh, adopt some kids, so uh, we can't have them, so have them on camera, not physically here at the moment. So that was uh, one of the many hectic things I was referencing earlier. So we're getting three of them. I can't put their names out live, but if they are watching, which they might be, 
Hello, we can't wait to see you again on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoy the show, which, to be fair, probably doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and if you are watching it, we want to see on Wednesday what kind of uh, tree you would want. Yes, what kind of crazy tree that makes food you would want. I think a potato chip tree might be interesting. How about a macaroni bush? A macaroni bush? Chicken nugget tree. There you go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> It's a pizza tree. It's got an oven inside it. So I suppose it would have to be something that didn't really cook food, so probably not meat. I think there was an episode where I brought the bacon tree, though, wasn't there? There was. I the, think the so. The episode. Bacon trees. So, uh, if warp drive is achievable, what would a spaceship traveling via warp drive theoretically look like to an observing telescope, if detectable at all? Um, well, it's going towards you. Uh, well... If it's going faster than life, you're going to faster than life. They're first going to see it when it appears parked in orbit around you, right? Or whatever it does to decelerate. Um, and as it's coming towards you, you see a very, very blue shifted high energy object as it's decelerating. Uh, from the backside, um, I'm trying to think of what that would actually look like in terms of red shifting away. Uh, it's going to have a further from you, and it is going faster than light, but at the same time, the light that's leaving it. Oh, yeah. This depends on how it's going faster than light. Because if the photons were moving away from you effectively because it was coming out of the back of the ship, slow the light speed, you'd never see it once turned the engine on. It'd be a big black object. But from a more realistic perspective, they would probably just come in out of it at the same speed as though they were being emitted there. Like a warp drive ship uh, might not redshift the thing at all. Um, but you just have delays or flickers as it was going towards you, or kind of a stretchy thing. Um, it's so it depends so much on what's actually letting you uh, break reality, unfortunately. So what does this impossible thing look like? I'm afraid I can't give you a good answer on that today. <laughs> okay, so we have a question here from Jacob Laventis. Adam something has a depressing video. Why a Mars colony is a stupid and dangerous idea. How sanguine are you? We are overcoming challenges and radiation tolerance and terraforming over the near term. You know, I I really don't like when we uh, I really like when folks the context of something like that is like, well, why would this be a really horrible idea? I haven't seen that video. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure if I've seen that channel, so I don't know the context of how they were saying that, and I don't want to take them out of context. But um, can we actually terraform Mars at some point in time? Sure. I still, as you guys know, I, I prefer the space habitats approach where you mine planets and use them to build places you want to live uh, as opposed to just trying to turn some alien environment into something that you could very easily and comfortably live in. Um, at the same time, do I think that Mars is the best place to be doing that at? Uh, Venus might actually turn out to be easier to terraform, but we could actually live on Mars. I mean, using current technology, we could live on Mars. Could we prosper? Uh, maybe not. Could we potentially avoid getting any number of illnesses that might be associated with low gravity or getting radiation soaked if you went outside? Uh, get a little bit harder. But the tech is there. Uh, doing it economically, uh, doing it at a cost-breaking level, probably not. You know, you're looking at could we keep Connie going there if we didn't mind dumping a trillion dollars into a year? Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so, but is it a great idea? I really believe that any manned mission to Mars should be waiting until we've had a permanent base on the moon for at least a decade. So we're trying to decipher that last super chat question that just came in and a couple of other questions here. But uh, someone wants to know if you would rather live on a planet 
populated by a civilization of vampires or by a civilization of werewolves? Vampires or werewolves? I know, quite the choice there. Um, hmm. Which would you prefer? A civilization populated by vampires. Am I one of them? I guess the question there is, it's uh, I get to be one. If so, you want to be whichever one you are, you're yeah. more likely to survive. I know there was a movie, I haven't actually seen it yet, where basically it's a civilization that keeps humans on, on uh, you know, uh, virtual reality while they suck blood out of the vampire population. But um, I don't know. I, I feel like werewolves don't actually have to eat people to live, and therefore that would, I'd feel a little bit less ethically challenged about that. But if I go crazy and berserk and kill people all the time, um, yeah, that might make a fun trip for virtual reality, but not really if that's something I'd want to live on the planet where people are doing that all the time. Um, I guess, again, the context is, am I one of the werewolves or vampires? <sighs> and given how that usually works out, the answer is probably either you're very not long living on that planet or you end up as one of them. So... Um, I would say that I tend to find both a little bit oversaturated in fiction these days. So uh, neither one by choice, some other mythical monster instead, please. <laughs> and the last question for today is a super chat from Ashish Anand, and he is from India. Thank you for your super chat, Ashish. Hi, Arthur. Greetings from India. Wanted to know cyclical conformal cosmology. Is it really true? Isn't it a paradox? Who or what started this cyclic process? Um, conformal cyclic cosmology? Yes, although the words are in the other... Okay. Uh, I mean, it could be either... Uh, I, I usually use conformal cyclic cosmology. That's a blanket area. I know that Penrose has a very specific version of that that's, that comes up um, that I may be misquoting, but uh, usually it's just the idea that you have a universe that... Jeez. Um, I, I, I want to make sure I'm not going with the wrong cyclic version. Sometimes it's the universe expands and then contracts and, 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 and starts back over. That would not be it. That's the classic one we have from back when we thought the universe would just expand, contract, big crunch over and over again. Um, I don't remember the specific way in which this one does that. We addressed the notion in our Big Rip episode 2 for the idea that the universe might expand infinitely and then each new Big Bang is coming from you know a space the size of an atom that's expanding to a whole new universe which then avoids the Fermi paradox situation. That's the only cyclic cosmology thing I can think of that really avoids the Fermi paradox. Um, and that is one of the big ones on any of these cyclic ones, because we have no evidence one way or another on them. If they work out theoretically, that's great, but you got to be able to test it. If they work theoretically, though, the big follow-up question is always, how does it avoid the Fermi paradox? Why can't people find some way to survive into the next incarnation of the universe? And again, we, we discussed one that does work in, in the Big Rip episode, even though I think the Big Rip is itself pretty much a put theory at this point in time. And I think that's going to be our last question for today. So. Wanna, oh, you know what? It's because it's Halloween. It was already after parties. Usually with this big backlog, I have to do a lightning round. So, uh, any other cool stuff going on today? I think we're pretty much set to go. So we are going to go ahead and tune out. We will see everybody on Thursday for... Uh, either damaged spaceships or refueling the sun. I forgot which week it is. Oh my <laughs> goodness. It's been a crazy week. <laughs> it's been a busy time. Wish us luck. We'll see you next week. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. 
Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.